This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the The Big Big Dinosaur Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast. where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week, we're back from our Big Dinosaur road trip, and we have our first interview, which was with Jules Goff and George Jacob from the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum. We have some news that we're catching up on. And since that Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum is in Alberta, our dinosaur of the day is Albertosaurus. First, jumping into our news, last week we talked about some new evidence from the Antarctic that there was a sudden extinction event likely caused by a meteorite or something like that. And that was based on some mollusks that were found in Antarctica. This week we've got another paper based on similar evidence from Antarctica by Sierra Peterson and others who believe that the Deccan traps may have caused some extinctions as well. Basically, the Deccan traps are a region in India that was formed from massive volcanism that was going on right around the same time that the Chicxulub impactor hit Earth. So there's always this debate of were the Deccan traps volcanism causing extinctions or was it the meteorite that made the Chicxulub crater? Nobody really knows for sure. So it's pretty hard to separate which event caused extinction, or even if it was a combined effect, like we talked about that study where the meteorite may have caused more eruptions from the Deccan traps or something. There's all sorts of complicated possibilities. So these researchers used a paleothermometer, which we've talked about before, and basically you compare oxygen isotopes in the rock and you can calculate seawater temperature based on the ratio of the isotopes, and then they used those temperatures and compared them to extinction events. So they saw that there was a large spike at the beginning of the Deccan Trap eruptions of about 8 to 20 degrees Fahrenheit, or 5 to 11 degrees Celsius, which is pretty huge, and then there was a smaller spike when the Chicxulub impactor hit. The spike appears to align pretty well with a previously published extinction event, from just before the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary. And I hadn't really seen much about that before, but there is a theory that there were really two big extinction events right in rapid succession. So this would work well with that theory because the spike in temperature lines up pretty well with that slightly before the end of the Cretaceous extinction event. They do point out that the temperature, that massive temperature increase of 8 to 20 degrees Fahrenheit, might be amplified by melting ice in the area since it was in Antarctica, whereas in the rest of the world maybe there wouldn't have been as dramatic of an increase in temperature. 
but they think that since the two pulses of extinction seem to line up with the temperature increases and the Deccan Traps volcanism, that there's pretty good evidence that the meteorite and the Deccan Traps both contributed to the extinction, and it wasn't just the meteorite. So just another page in the ongoing debate of what caused the extinction of dinosaurs. So I guess we'll wait for the next paper, <laughs> and eventually we'll get to a conclusion. It does seem like, since there's so much back and forth, that a combination of the Deccan Traps and the impactor might be the cause. Up next, Peter Larson, president of the Black Hills Institute of Geological Research, who we interviewed in our first episode of I Know Dino. He was part of a team, along with scientists from the Naturalist Biodiversity Center in the Netherlands, that found four Triceratops skeletons together in one spot. And this is significant because it shows that they were not solitary animals. In this case, the four Triceratops may have been a family, since they're all different sizes and ages. So it'll be interesting when we hear more about that. Yeah, that's really cool. It's always neat when they find juveniles with adults because that's not too common. Yeah, definitely. Paleontologists in British Columbia have found tens of thousands of dinosaur tracks, which may be one of the largest amount of fossilized tracks found in North America. The tracks are from 100 million years ago, mostly of Allosaurus, and scientists found the site eight years ago but didn't have funding until now to excavate, and they were, I think, kind of hiding it until they got money. <laughs> And they hope that eventually it will become a tourist attraction and possibly work with other dinosaur attractions nearby to create a northern dinosaur trail. That would be cool. We did hear that there was very briefly a Canadian dinosaur trail, but they kind of shot for the moon and it fell apart. Yeah, but maybe this one will work out and you get a Canadian t-shirt. Yeah, that'd be cool. Next, in Te Uroa in Indonesia, three organizations are embarking on a two-year project to learn more about earth science in the area. And according to Sun Media, the project tasked with finding fossils is a dinosaur hunt, of what they're calling it. That area used to be a national park, and areas nearby have been also rich in dinosaur fossils, so hopefully they find some good things. Cool. Next, in 2018, the Field Museum in Chicago will have a new exhibit called Antarctic Dinosaurs. And the exhibit will feature fossils found in the Field Museum's expedition to Antarctica in 2010 and include, quote-unquote, Dinosaur Mountain, a 25-foot-long cryolophosaurus, as well as Jolly Roger, a juvenile prosauropod. And what's cool about this is that Ken Griffin, a hedge fund billionaire, donated $5.5 million to the exhibit, which will also be a traveling exhibit. Cool. Mm-hmm. You can do a lot of cool stuff with all that money. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of cool stuff, in Lightning Ridge, Australia, we've talked about how there's dinosaur fossils that have been opalized, which I'd really like to see someday. Jenny Bramall, a paleontologist who's found some of these opalized fossils, is part of the team trying to build a $22.5 million opal museum in the town to help attract more tourists. The current museum is in Bramall's office, which only has about 5% of the collection that will be on display in the permanent museum. And the permanent museum will have a two-story hothouse of prehistoric plant life, exhibits and research facilities, and a vault where they will sell opals. And of course, there are opalized dinosaur fossils, including part of an ornithopod spine, skull, limbs, and ribs. The new museum is planned to open in 2020, so mark your calendar, Garrett. <laughs> I hope they make it. We've been wanting to do that dinosaur trail loop thing in Australia, too. Mm -hmm. That'd be a good excuse to fly out there. Definitely. Next, Brian Switek 
gave an overview of how to see dinosaur traits in their descendants, birds. Aside from feathers, both dinosaurs and birds have wishbones, and they also both have specialized air sacs that make their skeletons lighter and breathing more efficient. Yeah, at least the later dinosaurs. Not all of them had those features. Yeah, but it's cool to think of these similarities. Yeah, I always notice it when I look at the feet. Because they both had those scaly feet. And then even some birds, like chickens, have the feathers on their feet, too. Yeah. Like dinosaurs might have. Jurassic World noticed that, too. Yeah, with the opening scene. Mm -hmm. That was good. So in a previous episode, we talked about two new dinosaur trails opening up in Chester in the UK. And it turns out that some people were actually worried that real dinosaurs were coming to their city. (laughs) based on the CGI pictures of dinosaurs, quote-unquote, invading the city that were posted online. According to the Mirror, quote, some people had thought the CGI photographs of dinosaurs in the city were actually real, and others had complained that dinosaurs should be kept in a zoo, end quote. <laughs> so in response, Dean Petten, the managing director of Big Heritage, which is in charge of the trails, posted on their Facebook page to address people's concerns, and he wrote, quote, Astounding that we are doing this, but having to put out this message with regards to our dinosaur trail following a few interesting responses. And then he mentioned that there will not be real dinosaurs coming to Chester since the photos are CGI. Dinosaurs are extinct, so they can't be kept in a zoo. And, quote, Chester Zoo does wonderful work in conservation, but even they would struggle to get 300 million year old fossils to breed, end quote. And for someone who said that they don't believe in dinosaurs, he wrote, quote, This isn't Game of Thrones or the Old Testament. It's based on sound science, i.e. observable evidence, End quote. Jeez, taking a hard line there. Yeah. But I appreciate it. It was funny at some of the museums we went to, people told us that kids were asking where Indominus Rex is and where are the real dinosaurs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like pretty much everybody involved in public dinosaur exhibitions deals with this in one way or another. It's pretty funny. Funny for us to read, but I'm sure it gets old. <laughs> yeah, but it is it is really good that even though it may seem like a silly question, showing them what the dinosaurs really are and then explaining, yeah, this is all dinosaurs are is super important. Yeah. On a lighter note, Birmingham, UK is full of plastic dinosaurs in their city center as part of Seekasaurus' game. Hmm. And Seekasaurus is the name of a Twitter account, and the man behind it, who wants to be anonymous, has hidden the dinosaurs and gives clues as to the whereabouts online. Sometimes when you find one, you even get a prize. And according to Birmingham Mail, Seekasaurus has 150 dinosaurs to hide, and he's painted some of their faces black, like a Zorro face mask. Hmm. They're also glued to magnets so they don't get blown away, and some of them have been hiding on ceilings while others are in cracks in walls and in flower displays, and some are in indie bars and coffee shops. One called York's Cafe gave the first person to find their dinosaur a free flat white coffee once they found out that Seekasaurus had hidden one there. That's cool. Next, Rick Sternerson, his son Jack, and Noel Scotch Anderson have teamed together to create Urban Dinosaurs, a graphic t-shirt line, and they created four characters— Urbanosaurus, a dinosaur that drinks Starbucks and wears an iWatch and Converse sneakers, T-Riff, MC Raptor, and Hot Rod Rex. And in addition to appearing on shirts, these characters are part of a comic book series. Hmm. Next up, Sounds Like Science tweeted us a video about planetary defense. And you may have heard that earlier this year, President Obama opened the Planetary Defense Coordination Office, or PDCO, to try to protect the Earth from an impact like the one that 
wiped out the dinosaurs or contributed to wiping out the dinosaurs, like our earlier article would argue. It's a really neat video that shows how we're monitoring the sky and how NASA operates the PDCO to coordinate university, government, and private astronomy groups to look for potentially hazardous objects, or PHOs. Lots of acronyms, so you know it's a good government organization. So the PHOs are any object larger than about 30 meters or 100 feet in diameter, and they discover about 1,500 of these every year, and they're especially interested in the ones that are close to Earth, also known as near-Earth objects. Recently, they noticed an object falling, likely a man-made ejection module, and they managed to predict its impact position with such accuracy that they actually flew a plane near where it was expected to break into the atmosphere, and they observed the fireball when it re-entered the Earth atmosphere and, you know, burst into a million flames. Hmm. And that's partly how they figured out that it might be this particular ejection module because it lit up a certain color when it was burning. And if you've taken a chemistry class where you burn different elements, they all burn different colors. And based on the color it was burning, they think it might have been titanium and then... This one thing was made out of titanium. So, anywho, pretty cool. It's nice to know that somebody's looking at the sky in case there's a huge meteor coming our way. They're doing a pretty good job finding most of the objects. The whole question of what you do after you discover one is another problem, but knowing is half the battle, I guess. Yeah. And last, a new 2D survival game called Stoneback lets players play as a caveman and hunt dinosaurs for meals. Players can also meet other characters and go on special quests, and they can sneak up on dinosaurs in the dark. It's interesting that it's 2D. I guess it's like a side-scroller type game. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. 
Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our interview. So like I mentioned before, our first dinosaur stop on our 4,000 mile road trip was almost half of that distance straight north to Wembley, Alberta and the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum. While we were there, we had the pleasure of speaking with Jules Goff, Education Outreach Programs Coordinator, and George Jacob, President of the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum. We are joined this week by Jules Goff, Education Outreach Programs Coordinator, and George Jacob, President of the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum. The Philip J. Curry Museum opened about a year ago here in northwest Alberta, and it's near the Pipestone Creek, which is a well-known site of many Pachyrhinosaurus specimens. The museum won several awards, nine awards in nine months, in fact, and just reached a milestone of 100,000 visitors in less than a year, about 10 months after opening. So really big congratulations. It's awesome. Like, What's been kind of the high point in this journey? <laughs> Well, like you can see that we've won a number of awards in a very short duration of time. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are endorsements from professional agencies that have seen the merits of this institution. We pulled together the fastest museum project in Canadian history. And the project was designed, built on record time, on budget. And that is fairly rare in the museum realm. Mm -hmm. We've had a number of visitors come in from the United States, from other parts of the world, because we are on Alaska Highway 43, which gets a lot of traffic. Mm -hmm. We have a number of uh, interesting features with this museum that includes a National Geographic Theater, two smart classrooms that Jules uh, leads with a 3D printing lab. We have a fossil paleo lab. We've entered into a partnership with the University of Alberta for an endowed professorship in vertebrate paleontology that allows these institutions to work together in tandem. And uh, we have an active education and outreach program that we are quite proud of. Yeah, we're reading some of the things on the website that you do. Yeah, there's quite a wide variety <laughs> of rooms and stuff. Even just looking at the map of the museum, there's a lot of different stuff. Mm -hmm. So since we mentioned those classrooms, is that something that you do, too? Yes, definitely. Um, I lead a lot of the education programs myself jointly with the rest of our department. And I think we had about 5,000 students wow. um, come through this past school year. And we already have several bookings for the 2016-2017, so we're expecting to have even higher numbers. But and we have, again, our Pipestone Bone Bed, Pipestone Creek Bone Bed tours in the summers, which we've had for about five summers, I think. This will be our fifth summer. Started as an outreach project prior to the museum open, and we're very happy to have it continue on down there. It's a good way to have people become more aware of fossil laws and paleontology and be able to physically walk into one of the bone beds. It's not often that there's accessible bone beds, mm -hmm. especially in this area. Yeah. <laughs> and the other dimension is that for those who can't walk the bone bed, we have helicopter rides. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, last year it was quite popular and we were in Vertical Magazine. So the magazine focuses on helicopters. So once you're airborne, you're actually given a tablet PC and that allows you to look at content as you're flying over the bone bed. And this is a small step in a larger scheme of tying airborne paleo tourism to different bone bed sites. Hmm. So Grand Cache, which is about two, two and a half hours from here, 
has uh, more than 10,000 dinosaur tracks. And the only way one can see it is if one goes on an extensive hike or flies over it. So part of our larger plan is to connect some of these bone bed sites, not just in Alberta, but also in British Columbia, and have a common sort of a dinosaur superhighway <laughs> that you can admire from the air and learn about the movement and speed of some of these animals and herds of animals. Hmm. So is that the kind of stuff that's on the tablet, is information about what they were like when they were alive kind of thing? Or? Right. The information on the tablet, uh, which Jules has been actively involved in developing, includes information on uh, some of the early finds from the 1970s and uh, what were the species that were unearthed here at Pipestone Creek. Mm-hmm. It also has a map of finds that maps other dinosaurs' sites across Alberta and British Columbia. And you have a lot of uh, fact-based and knowledge-based information that you can retrieve from the tablet PC. Cool. Yeah. And once they finish the ride, they're supposed to come and identify the silhouettes that you see in our lobby. And if they get the five of them right, free membership. Oh, wow. (laughs) How often does that happen? It hasn't happened yet. (laughs) (laughs) We could probably do it. Uh, I don't know. (laughs) It's pressure. (laughs) (laughs) So we read that... This museum also has a lot of augmented reality and virtual reality aspects built in. What other things can visitors expect to see? So the way the building is laid out, we decided to use the dynamics of the building structure itself. So at the mezzanine level, right at the front desk, the ticketing counter, we put our first exhibit right there. And not many museums do that. So the first onslaught is you look at a dense bone bin. And then as you lean over and look at you know the descending galleries, which is going into the bowels of the earth as a dig site, you also gaze up to see some of the articulated skeletal forms on top of the ceiling. And the augmented reality platforms pivot on two stems, and you can point to uh, some of those skeletal forms and retrieve some hotspots and factoids. And once you've retrieved all the information from the hot buttons, it sets the animal in, in motion in an environment. So you can see the pterodactyls move, you can see the plesiosaurus move, under the ocean and in the skies. And those platforms are a big hit with school kids and adults alike. I'm sure. (laughs) So we worked with a firm out of Hong Kong and Toronto to get the AR platforms going. So it took us about eight months to develop the software and the visual effects to have that quick sort of feel for the environment in which these dinosaurs moved and lived. Yeah. Wow. Eight months. That's impressive. (laughs) Can we go back to the, the 3D printing real quick, as you mentioned? Yeah. So when the kids come and they learn and they get to work with 3D printers, what kind of stuff do they do with it? We're kind of working on developing a couple of different programs with it. One is definitely for the visually impaired, as they're not able to necessarily see things, but we've been working with 3D printing as accurate as we can get. Mm-hmm. Skeletons, we actually have one of the Pachyrhinosaurus, the Kustai, and it shows it fleshed out so you can actually feel, okay, here's where the frill would be in the horns and the tail and the legs. So we use them in conjunction with real fossils in passing around with our, depending on the program that we're doing, depends on which fossils they're going to see. And if we can 3D print things that do work well with that, sometimes we're not able to get a particular fossil in, or if they have a really good specimen on the 3D printer, or we can show it fleshed out, which we can't do in fossil form, (laughs) and see, okay, here's where this bone would be in conjunction with that. And they also just really like looking at it. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. It's fun for them to see. For many of them, it's their first time seeing a 3D printer. And so we'll take kind of turns bringing them up and explaining how it works. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So you mentioned you've been doing the Bone Bed program for the last five years in the museum. Obviously, it just opened last September, but 
it's been in the works for a few years. Could you talk about kind of how it all got started and maybe the inspiration, how it ended up being here in Wembley, in mm-hmm. Alberta? Well, Jules has been um, active even before she graduated at the Bombed site, and you know, she's shown great interest in fossil paleobiology, and I'll let her continue <laughs> um, So... Firstly, the bone bed was discovered in 1972 by a junior high science teacher by the name of Al Acusta. And so he was actually just walking through the creek bed. They knew it was a site of plant fossils and some, some marine, a lot of plant. And so had stumbled across the bones and knew it was something, wasn't sure what it was. At the time, the Royal Tyrell wasn't open. They didn't open until 1985. So it was identified through paleontologists at the Royal Alberta Museum um, through time. You know, they became identified, digs came out. When the Royal Tyrell opened, they were able to send teams up. One of the lead scientists on that was Philip J. Curry, and he is still very actively involved with the museum. So through time, they discovered that not only was this a Pachyrhinosaurus, which in itself is rare, there's only three species of Pachyrhinosaurus in the world, Pachyrhinosaurus locustae, which is only found in the Pipestone Creek bone bed, Pachyrhinosaurus canadensis, which is found in southern Alberta, and then the Pachyrhinosaurus praetorium, which is found up in Alaska. So when it was found, it was fairly rare that it was Pachyrhinosaurus. It's also a very significant bone bed in that it's one of the largest horned dinosaur bone beds in the world. It's also one of the densest bone beds in the world. The average bone bed will have about 50 to 60 bones per meter cubed, so meter by meter and then meter deep. The Pipestone Creek bone bed will have on average about 200 bones in that same area. <laughs> So excavating is very much like trying to get the bones out. And as you're digging up, say, a skull, you might have a leg bone and a rib bone like wrapping around it. So it's a very significant site. It's also one of the first places where they find insects in amber with dinosaur bones. Mm-hmm. They find the two separately, but not always together that common. And so they learned a lot. We have and still have paleontologists from all over the world coming up to excavate here. And so with that, they find numerous other sites around the world. Well, yes, around the world, but also around the Peace region. And so we have very, very rich fossil paleo history. So different people started to take notice. GPRC, the Grand Prairie Regional College, the... University of Alberta. <laughs> University of Alberta, which yes. is where I went. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, the name I'm forgetting is... The Paleontological yes. Society of Peace. Yes. PSP, I think. Yes. Yeah. Came very involved. No, they've been active for 100 years. So right from the time of George Dawson in the uh, 1890s, uh, Dawson Creek is named after him. So he was one of the first prospectors. Wow. And paleontology has been active in the piece for nearly a century. In fact, we're actually, Jules and I and some of our education team and curatorial team, we're involved with working with GPRC to create a comprehensive exhibit on 100 years of paleontology in the piece. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> focused in there and so they wanted to have something to showcase mm-hmm. and so in conjunction with the county mm-hmm. Pipestone Creek Dinosaur Initiative in 2011 is when I came on to help do public programs they already had a team in place a small team of about five people to help fundraise and get word out and so they had an education department and I was in public did stuff in the summer a lot of it was just raising awareness and bringing people out because many people out here didn't know that we had that mm-hmm. many resources. I grew up here and didn't know for years <laughs> that we had it. So a lot of it was bringing that, bringing awareness, and then which led into the museum, having it be placed here. Um, the name was changed from River of Death and Discovery Dinosaur Museum to the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum to honor all the work that 
Dr. Philip J. Curry has done. Mm -hmm. And the location was land donated to us by the Anderson family, which we're very grateful for. The site of it is also great in that it's close proximity to the bone bed. It's only a 15-minute drive away to the Pipestone bone bed. Mm -hmm. But we're also right along the Alaska Highway, so we're able to get in all those tourists instead of having it be a sign on the side of the road that says 15 kilometers this way. (laughs) They might not turn off. Seeing the building right there, you Mm -hmm. can't miss it. You see it from how many mm-hmm. range roads back. <laughs> yeah, and, and this week is actually quite a significant week because we have some of the world's best paleontologists digging at Pipestone Creek. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Phil Curry is there, Dr. Eva Kupelhus is there, uh, Dr. Xu Xing from Beijing is here, Dr. Corbin Sullivan is here, Dr. Jin Mai is supposed to join day after tomorrow. Wow. So there is a world-class crew right now on site carrying out you know serious uh, digging and excavation at Pipestone Creek. Definitely. And so, a few of them are coming here to give talks, right? Yes. They are. Yeah. yeah. So Jules and uh, Derek Larson have been active in arranging that. You know, I'm glad that he agreed for the talk. Yeah. So We're looking I'm, forward to it. Yeah. yeah. Saturday at 4 p.m. we have Dr. Shushin. And then on the 16th we have Corbin Sullivan. Mm-hmm. So while they're here for the two weeks. <laughs> 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 so I wish we were here a little longer. <laughs> mm-hmm. I saw also you have uh, sleepovers here. Yes, <laughs> yes, we do have. In our, you know, desire to expand our outreach, expand our different programs, reach different groups of people and different interest groups, we have a night at the museum. And so, I mean, who doesn't want to come sleep with the dinosaurs? <laughs> it's fun. And so, children, and then we do have a parent come with them up to a certain level of adult per children. Come in, they come in for the evening. We feed them a evening snack. They also get a after hours guided gallery tour with either myself or my other education coordinator, Emma Rubin, takes them through a guided gallery tour. They get to private viewing of one of our National Geographic films. Lots of times it's Sea Monsters because that's a fantastic one. <laughs> um, very popular and fits right in with our galleries. And then after the snack time, which I like food, <laughs> we then have a local uh, musician artist, Cam White. And he comes in and he's actually written specifically for the museum a show. And it takes them again through the galleries, but from the point of fear of Peter Rock Lacusta, it's a Pachyrhinosaurus like rock musician. <laughs> and he's singing his way back through the Cretaceous. And so you learn again in a very different way all about the Cretaceous through very interactive singing and interactive show. And it's very, very fun and entertaining. And slightly educational, but, you know, <laughs> in a very fun and entertaining way. And that kind of going through the galleries, specific points, stories of, you know, Gorgosaurus coming up to eat them, but then it turns out, you know, the Gorgosaurus really just wants to be part of their band. <laughs> and, you know, the Hadrosaur that's always wanted to be a bass player, and they become this great dynamic team, and he does all these voices, and it's fantastic. And then after that, they have a little bit of time to, you know, roam through the galleries as they wish, and then kind of a quiet time where they then sleep and then we have breakfast the next morning and then they can go to the museum some more if they want. <laughs> Wonderful. So we've heard how Jules got involved with the museum, but George, how did you end up working here and becoming president? I've been uh, planning and designing museums for many years. Uh, this is my 30th year, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always uh, been a museologist at heart. And uh, I've worked both on the commercial side of the business and the nonprofit side. Hmm. 
and I've set up different museums in other parts of the world. And as a Canadian, I'd uh, never set up anything in Canada. So when this opportunity came by, I decided to come and be part of this uh, new institution. That's wonderful, and uh, especially we really like the architecture. Yeah. <laughs> the architecture is quite interesting. It's a lead gold standard building. And as I mentioned previously, it goes underground two levels. Uh, so it's deceptive from the outside. Mm-hmm. So it actually has a larger footprint than you see. So if you add all the floors, it is about 82,000 square feet. Wow. And so that's the volumetric space. And then it's got these cathedral-like uh, ceilings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the asymmetrical roofing is uh, held up by these nodes. You've got 5.7.9 point nodes in this building. And if you look closely, at the apex, you have these glue lamb wafers that are stacked. And that gives it additional strength and seismic capacity. So structurally, the building is uh, held up with this sort of nodal support base, and it's covered with a skin of a triple-coated zinc. So oh. you can see this faceted zinc ceiling. At some point, it'll be coated with uh, solar panels that'll allow us for uh, some sort of use of natural energy. Mm-hmm. There are plans of expanding this building by adding an IMAX theater and a digital vestibule and concession and a convention center. So in addition to that, we plan to add an annex for resident scholars so mm-hmm. that when paleontologists come during summertime, they don't have to stay in hotels, they can stay on campus. And we also plan to expand our storage facility. So currently we have limited collection storage vault facility. Mm-hmm. We want to quadruple that size. We also want to build a lab for prototyping articulated skeletal forms mm-hmm. of dinosaurs. We also want to build our own exhibits, traveling exhibits, and send it across you know, other parts of the world. So those are all ambitious phase two and phase three plans for this this area. And when I say ambitious, I, I say that it's a doable ambition because this in itself is something very different from what Grand Prairie has been used to. Mm-hmm. So that leap that they have taken from, from state structures that you see all around you to allow for this award-winning architectural edifice to come uh, to being mm-hmm. uh, shows that they are open to taking those uh, you know, exponential leaps into possibilities. Yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. I love the architecture. All the pictures of it, it gives you a million different angles, angles to look to at. to work it. with. Yeah. And um, Jules may be able to talk a little bit more in detail about another aspect of the education program that we're working on, which is quite uh, that leap, which is called Visualizing Dinosaurs. And we're working with the Dutch firm with the CIP grant mm-hmm. to create something really special in Maybe you can add sure. to it. Yeah. yeah. Where the base came from is we wanted something that could work as like both in-house, but also as like an e-learning or something that everyone in the world can access. And so it's actually a create your own dinosaur type project. <laughs> and so you can choose, you know, different parts of heads of different dinosaurs, bodies of different dinosaurs, tails, different skin textures, different poses. And so you move through these different stages of picking what the body parts you want, picking the skins you want, picking how it poses, and it tells you, you know, what percentage of different dinosaur it is. And so you can see, oh, it's, you know, 40% Gorgosaur and 60% Pachyrhinosaurus, and then you can name your dinosaur and actually have it in different kind of backgrounds. And then we want to expand it into having online so that yours can be, say, I created a dinosaur, and say, you created a dinosaur. They could then be in the same space together and kind of interact with each other. And so it's something that, yes, we want both in-house here, but also to be able to go elsewhere. And so the Denmark team is very, very excited about it and creating lots of very interesting things. And mm-hmm. coming, phase one will become 
soon. <laughs> <laughs> so 90 days is when we'll launch our beta. So it is fairly soon. That is soon. <laughs> That's exciting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Will you be making your own dinosaurs? Of course. <laughs> Do you already have some ideas? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I feel like the Pachyrhinosaurus is going to be very popular among locals. <laughs> yeah. As you know, we have two beers named after local Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So you can actually taste them in the dinosaur restaurant. <laughs> so they were launched, I think, a month and a half ago yeah. with a local microbrewery. The first one is called uh, Leptoceratops, Leptolager. <laughs> and the second one is called uh, Honey Brown, Hadrosaur Honey Brown. Catchy. <laughs> so, yeah. So make sure you have a pint before you leave. Yeah. I'll have to. <laughs> so... You mentioned that you might make some traveling exhibits. You have one here right now called Tiny Titans. Mm-hmm. Is there any reason that you guys chose that one or anything special about it? I think renting exhibits is always a little tricky with the logistics. And one has to find an exhibit that fits in their movement circuit mm-hmm. without costing an arm and leg for transportation costs, shipping costs. Because you're a little bit out of the... Out of the loop. <laughs> and so, you know, the distances in Alberta are great. And especially if the exhibit is coming from the United States... So we opened with an exhibit from Ottawa, which is called Ice Age Mammals. And uh, once that exhibit left, the next in line was Tiny Titans. And we had been angling over this exhibit for almost a year because sometimes it takes several years in advance for you to book and get something Mm. so that it falls within the circuit of availability. And that exhibit is developed jointly with Harvard, Yale, and University of Kentucky. And it's an older exhibit, but it's still very powerful. And given our space limitations, it's only a fraction of the exhibit that you can see downstairs. Portions of that exhibit are out in the front area of the building. Mm. And once this exhibit leaves, we have a new exhibit coming in, which is called Dinosaurs in Flight. And then subsequent to that, we have another exhibit coming in from New York. Cool. The American History Museum. No, I think the bigger cities have the advantage of, uh, you know, large underwriters, sponsors, Mm -hmm. and funding. They also have the advantage of captive audience. So they yeah. have you know, 12 million people right there. <laughs> and um, so the dynamics are very different. And here we are in a small rural uh, northern Alberta community, which does not get favorable weather for six months a year. Mm-hmm. Winters are brutal and harsh. So for children and communities living here, this is perhaps the only place where they can get exposed to this sort of content. Mm-hmm. So whatever we do in terms of outreach and in-house programming has that added responsibility of embracing the needs of a community that is underserved. That makes sense. So then what kind of specifically do you look for for exhibits to have here? Well, uh, it has to be in sync with our budget. We operate on a very tight budget. We have uh, a small fraction of our funding coming from the county of Grand Prairie. Mm -hmm. And the rest of it has to come from the museum's programs and ticket sales and gift shop and restaurant and other units that help it survive. And with the tumbling oil-based economy, the conventional sources of sponsorship are hard to come by. Mm-hmm. It might change down the line because you know museum is here for a long, long period of time. So these little cyclical blips, it has to have the capacity to absorb those punches and still come up with offering you know the best value for money. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. You mentioned in the future you plan to expand and you know a place for paleontologists to stay while they're working, place to together but you already have a lab right what can you do in the lab right now so the lab is a fledgling lab it is well equipped but uh, 
the first step in having the lab as an active resource is to have an active set of specimens here. And in order to hold specimens here, one has to have an official repository status. In order to have a repository status, <laughs> one has to have that active collaboration with the University of Alberta mm -hmm. because the Historic Resources Act require us to have that sort of uh, an association. So we've just floated an endowed professorship in vertebrate paleontology with U of A, mm -hmm. and that agreement was signed last year. And we will have a uh, the first endowed professor based here in the near future in the lab. And once that happens, it'll have uh, the capacity to hold the specimens. It'll also have the capacity for us to apply for joint and cert grants that allow us to engage in active research programs. Hmm. We can also apply for National Geographic grants and other grants. That'll bring us project staff. That'll bring us uh, resources to go out in the field for active prospecting and engage in an active publications program. So those things, you know, paleontology is such a field that some of those things take time. Mm -hmm. But the, the foundation is there, and I think uh, we have the strength to build up from. So as long as we lay all the proper steps in place, I think the future generations will continue to build on it. That's great. Yeah. So can you prepare fossils in that, or do you need your associate professor before you can start doing that kind of work? We do have over 3,000 marine fossils in the lab, and we have digitally documented all of them on PassPerfect, which is a big step. And um, we used to have a fossil preparation summer program under a certain grant, uh, jointly with GPRC, and I believe we can start that fossil preparation and cleaning program anytime. Cool. So, Jules has been active in getting some Young Canada Works students who have been involved with both education and also in the collections vault. We're very excited and happy to have them. So we have one of them who is actively finishing up some of our cataloging. And then I have two in my department, which I'm very happy about. <laughs> <laughs> so they're doing a lot of our, our bone bed tours on the weekends and our summer programs. Or during the week ones actually start tomorrow. So hmm. we have for ages 4 to 12, nice. two different programs. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So I know you also have an amber ball coming up. Is that your first? I think you've had a couple other events. And Four, or this is the fifth one, I think. Okay. So it started off as a fundraising initiative, mm -hmm. and at some point we got actors Dan Aykroyd and Donna Dixon Aykroyd involved, and we have a theater named after them. It's called the Aykroyd yeah, so. Theater. And the making of the museum documentary, they've lent their voices to its narrative. Mm -hmm. And so they have been great champions and advisors uh, of the museum. And ambassadors, and uh, every summer they come in. Uh, Dan Aykroyd does a Harley Davidson motorcycle rally in support of the mm -hmm. museum that brings out 500 bikers. And in the evening, we have an Amber Ball, and that's our annual fundraiser, and that allows us to share our vision and our achievements with the community. And you know, this is a small, tightly knit community, so they value their resources very much. Yeah, I was kind of wondering, how, do you know how Dan Aykroyd got involved with it? I know he must have an interest in dinosaurs because I've seen him narrate a few other pieces and things. Mm -hmm. Well, Mrs. Aykroyd has been active in the Explorers Club, hmm. and that brought her to the dig one summer. And my predecessor, Colonel Brian Brake, was instrumental in getting them on board as our ambassadors. And they embraced the idea and the notion that they could do something with their presence in terms of galvanizing the community to contribute. And they were given the key to the peace region by both the mayor and the reeve of uh, Grand Prairie. Hmm. And they have been quite active in providing that you know, sort of push to promote the institution. Cool. That must be very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
other than the awesome architecture and the pipestone bone bed and the 3D printing lab and all these awesome things we talked about. Other than everything. Yeah. (laughs) Is there anything else that you think makes this museum unique or special in some way that we've missed? I think museums are unique and special because of the content they hold and the potential of what they can do to leverage that content to reach out and influence and inspire many minds. And this is our first year in operation, so we're still two months shy of the first anniversary. (laughs) And we've reached 100,000 people, which is an incredible number. We've been rated by Condé Nast World Traveler as the top 10 destinations, same with Global Mail and also with... uh, Air Canada. So those are sort of things to kind of watch out for in terms of what it can do beyond the geopolitical limitations of our location. The online program with visualizing dinosaurs and the e-learning modules uh, that we currently have online allow us to reach a wider audience. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the finds that happen at Pipestone Creek would definitely give us the added sort of profile in terms of the depth of content. And I think the institution will be successful if it's able to conduct active research, generate academic publications, and also translate some of that complex science into understandable bites with our exhibit content treatment. So all the questions I have. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking (laughs) the time. You're welcome. Thank you for taking the time to interview. Yeah. (laughs) This has been amazing. So we really appreciate George and Jules taking the time to talk to us and also show us around the museum and some of the highlights. Yeah, it's a really cool museum. I mean, a lot of museums talk about, oh, we have these neat features and there's these cool interactive things. But this one really was unique, mostly because it's so brand new. I've never seen a museum where you can point an iPad at a skeleton and then see it come to life. That was really cool. And they also have a, I think it's a Gorgosaurus, but I'm not sure, some theropod mounted. And then next to it, there's a video on a pretty big portrait TV where it shows it kind of roaming around. It's cool to combine those features. Yeah, if you want to see some of those images, we put together a quick video and it's posted on YouTube and our blog. We're calling it the Epic Dinosaur Road Trip. (laughs) Yeah, it was a really good museum with a lot of neat stuff going on. And then while we were there, George pointed us to the Pipestone Creek Bone Bed, which is very close to the museum, where a group of world-famous paleontologists were there excavating, and we got a chance to take some pictures of them and talk to them a little bit. Yeah, they mentioned they were looking for a complete frill of a pachyrhinosaurus. And we share some of our pictures in our video as well. Yeah, it was a very good start to the trip. (laughs) It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. 
Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Albertosaurus, which was a request from the dinosaur Taylor via YouTube. So thank you. The name Albertosaurus means lizard from Alberta, and it's a tyrannosaurid that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Alberta, Canada. It was first discovered in 1884 as part of an expedition by the Geological Survey of Canada, led by the geologist Joseph Bird Tyrrell. They didn't have the right kind of equipment, so they could only get part of the skull instead of the nearly complete skull. And Tyrrell was 25 at the time and looking for coal when he found Albertosaurus in the Horseshoe Canyon formation of Red Deer River in Alberta, Canada. Then in 1889, Thomas Kessmer Weston found a smaller, incomplete skull nearby. Both Albertosaurus skulls were assigned by Edward Drinker Cope in 1892 to Laleps in though Charles Marsh had changed Laleps to Dryptosaurus in 1877 because Laleps was the name of a mite. Cope, however, did not accept Marsh's name, probably because the Bone Wars. And then Lawrence Lamb used the name Dryptosaurus instead of Laleps when describing the bones in 1903 and 1904. He called them Dryptosaurus incrustatus. Then, Henry Fairfield Osborne said that Dryptosaurus was based on generic Tyrannosaurid teeth, so the Albertosaurus bones could not be for sure referred to as Dryptosaurus. Also, their skulls were different from the type species of Dryptosaurus. Henry Fairfield Osborne named Albertosaurus in a one-page note at the end of his description of T. rex in 1905. And the type species is Albertosaurus sarcophagus. And the species name means flesh-eating. Both Albertosaurus specimens are stored in the Canadian Museum of Nature in Ottawa. Later, some scientists thought that it could be a nomum dubium because the holotype was damaged. Then in 2010, Thomas Carr established the holotype and paratype and found that they had a unique common trait of an enlarged pneumatic opening in the back of the palatine bone. In 1928, William Parks described a new Albertosaurus species named Albertosaurus artunguis based on a partial skeleton with no skull that Gus Lindbald and Ralph Hornell found in 1923 near Red Deer River, but since 1970 it's been considered to be the same as Albertosaurus sarcophagus. Other Albertosaurus species have been named, but they're now considered to be synonyms, nomina dubia or no longer assigned to Albertosaurus. Charles Sternberg found another Tyrannosaurid skeleton in 1913 in Dinosaur Park formation in Alberta. Lawrence Lamb named it Gorgosaurus libertus in 1914. More specimens were found later in Alberta and Montana. Dale Russell said it was a junior synonym of Albertosaurus, based on not having significant differences. So Gorgosaurus libertus was renamed in 1970 to Albertosaurus libertus, and it still had an age difference of several million years, which is why the species is different. Philip Curry said in 2003, after comparing Tyrannosaurid skulls, that the two species were distinct and recommended that they be separate genera, like Displatosaurus and Tyrannosaurus. Good old splitting versus lumping, striking again. <laughs> yeah. So some Albertosaurine bones have been found in Alaska and New Mexico, and Curry suggested that there would be more clarification once they were fully described, but not everyone agrees. Barnum Brown found a large group of Albertosaurus in 1910 at a different quarry along Red Deer River. He didn't have enough time to collect all the bones, so instead he and his team collected some bones from the individuals they could identify. They became part of the American Museum of Natural History collection, and there were at least nine individuals in the quarry. Phil Curry relocated the bone bed in 1996 based on just four photographs of Barnum Brown's trip. In 1997, the Royal Tyrrell Museum found the bone bed again, and from 97 to 2005 found 13 more individuals, including bones from a two-year-old and an adult, an old adult. None of them were complete skeletons. They kept excavating until 2008 and estimated there were at least 12 individuals in the bone bed, and at most 26. A total of 1,128 bones were secured, which is the largest number of theropod fossils that we know of from the Cretaceous. 
The dry island bone bed where 26 albertosaurus were found consisted of one 28-year-old, eight adults between ages 17 to 23, seven sub-adults between 12 and 16, and six juveniles between 2 and 11 years old. Most of the known albertosaurus specimens were around the age 14. The oldest and largest albertosaurus was 28 years old and 33 feet or 10 meters long, and the youngest was 2 years old and 6.6 feet or 2 meters long and weighing 110 pounds or 50 kilograms. Just a little guy. Yeah. <laughs> By age 2, albertosaurus was larger than any other predator in the area, aside from adult albertosaurus, so if they made it to age 2, they tended to live until they were fully grown. Those adults, they had a higher mortality rate, possibly from stress for competing for mates and resources or the stress of procreation. Albertosaurus grew most rapidly between ages 12 to 16, which is a similar growth rate to similar-sized tyrannosaurids. And during this growth period, Albertosaurus gained 250 pounds per year. No herbivore bones have been found, so the bone bed was probably not a predator trap. And because of this, Curry said it was evidence of pack behavior, though other scientists think that they may have come together by drought or flood. In 2010, Curry said they may have come together for other causes other than pack behavior, such as a slowly rising water level in an extended flood. They may have also been like Komodo dragons, where they go into a feeding frenzy, which leads to some of them being killed or cannibalized. Younger Albertosaurus had longer legs than adults and were probably fast, and Curry hypothesized that the juveniles drove prey towards the slower adults. They probably were not too fast as an adult, and if they fell, they would have been badly injured. They may have walked as fast as 8 to 13 miles per hour, or 14 to 21 kilometers per hour. They lived in a semi-tropical environment with lots of vegetation, and prey included hadrosaurs, ceratopsians, and ornithomimids. They had 58-plus banana-shaped teeth, and they had at least one replacement tooth for each tooth. They had a maximum bite force of 3,413 newtons. And the teeth were serrated, and they used a grip-and-rip approach to cut through the flesh and bone, and they could crunch through bone. They may have also used a bite-and-slice way of hunting. Biting flesh puts a stress on Albertosaurus teeth, and William Abler suggested that Albertosaurus had a line of serrations on its teeth, ampullas, to keep the teeth from cracking. And these are round voids at the base of the crack-like serration on the tooth that helped Albertosaurus's bite be stronger. Albertosaurus may have bit each other's faces. One was found with marks on its lower jaw, so again, it's hard as an adult. <laughs> in 2009, scientists said that smooth-edged holes in the jaws of Albertosaurus and other tyrannosaurids may have been caused by a parasite similar to Trichinomus gallinae, which infects birds. They may have bitten each other and spread the infection, and it would have been difficult to eat food. Yeah, I could imagine if your jaw is infected and growing holes that eating would be a little painful. Definitely. It's like having cavities in your jaw itself. Yeah, that would be horrible. So again, Albertosaurus was about 30 feet or 9 meters long and somewhere as big as 33 feet or 10 meters long. They had a large head and long tail to help balance and a short S-shaped neck. The skull is about 3.3 feet or 1 meters long. And they had short bony crests above the eyes that may have been brightly colored possibly to attract mates. They weighed between 1.3 and 1.7 tons. They were bipedal with two-fingered hands, and they had four-toed feet, and the first digit, the hallux, was short and couldn't reach the ground. They're part of the subfamily Albertosaurinae in the family Tyrannosauridae, and they tend to have more slender builds, smaller skulls, and longer leg bones compared to dinosaurs in the other subfamily Tyrannosaurinae. Albertosaurus was about half the size of T-Rex, so smaller than T-Rex, but still large for its ecosystem, and it lived a few million years before T-Rex. So Tyrannosauridae means tyrant lizards, and they're theropods. Two subfamilies consist of up to 11 genera. The number of genera is controversial, and some people think it's as low as three. They lived in the late Cretaceous in Asia and North America. They were usually the largest predators around, and the largest species was T. rex. 
Not many complete specimens have been found from known tyrannosaurids, but many genera have complete skulls, and some of them had crests above their eyes. They also had small arms, but long legs, and juvenile tyrannosaurids had longer legs, which was more suited to running fast, but then that changed as adults. Yep, tyrannosaurids are definitely some of the most popular. And our fun fact of the day is that many plants, mollusks, fish, amphibians, and reptiles, dun-dun-dun, meaning birds and potentially dinosaurs, are indeterminate growers, which means that they don't have genes like humans do to stop us from growing after a certain age or size, and they kind of just continue growing. It is possible that dinosaurs were also indeterminate growers, meaning that they never really stopped growing, although their growth rate would have slowed down after reaching a certain size, or at least it does in modern indeterminate growers. So there's a bit of a debate about something like a sauropod. Did they get huge and then stop, or did they get huge and then continue to grow a little bit forever? I think they grew forever. (laughs) Like dragons do in some of the legends. (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Good day.